All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you for staying for this later session. I really appreciate you being here to hear me talk about workers' comp and managing workers' comp claims that involve pain. Um, I would have stood up there. You know, I've always wanted a couple extra feet to my height, but I am nervous I'm going to fall right off the edge. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to walk around a little bit. If I'm in front of the slides too much, give me a little nudge, and I'm happy to move out of your way. Um, so managing pain and workers' compensation claims. First of all, does anybody in here practice solely in workers' comp? Any full-time? Perfect. All right, so you guys are definitely going to get exactly what I'm saying here. So workers' compensation is a totally different animal when it comes to health care than what we're all, the rest of us may be used to when we think about group health. And so a few of those differences I'll point off from the get-go is that, you know, Group health are those cases of diabetes, high blood pressure, um, cholesterol. That's predominantly a lot of what group health is. And when you look at workers' compensation, most of it's pain. I mean, 75% of the medications that we see from a workers' compensation standpoint are pain medications, whereas only about 3% of those medications that you see from a group health standpoint, from a, from a spending standpoint, only about 3% of those medications are pain medications, the rest of those being those diabetes, high blood pressure, or high cholesterol type medications. Another one of the big differences between the two is that workers' compensation claims are 100% paid. Those scripts are paid for, whereas there might be some other type of payment for group health type medications, such as co-pays, deductibles, all of those differences. So you can see where that might set up a difference between how patients perceive their care how patients perceive what it is that is uh, belonging to them in terms of their medications. And unfortunately, in rare cases, but in some cases, that can set up diversion as well in workers' compensation because now, since I don't have to pay anything for my medications, all of those medications are coming in without cost. I may stockpile those medicines or I may share those medicines. So that does set up that potential, not always, but there's that potential for diversion with workers' compensation medications. The other point that I want to make a, a clarification on the differences between workers' compensation and group health is that sense of blame, right? So I'm not talking about who's at fault for my diabetes or who's at fault for my cholesterol or who's at fault for my high blood pressure. I'm talking about who's at fault for my injury. You know, I was a previously healthy person. Now I was injured on the job, and now I'm very upset about that, and there's some blame, maybe some hard feelings that go along with that, that might further impede that person returning back to work. So there's that psychosocial component that goes along with workers' compensation injuries as well that we don't typically see along with the group health side, okay? So I, I wanted to make those um, few distinctions there just from the beginning in terms of the differences between workers' compensation and group health. I'm gonna skip past the um, introduction. I don't have anything to disclose this afternoon. The objectives I wanna go through are describing the effects that pain has on workers' compensation claims list some key points in managing pain in that population, and, and also explain the importance of collaboration and restoration of function. And here are the key words. The three key words are return to work. That is what employers want to hear. That is what payers want to hear. That is what insurers want to hear. That's what doctors want to hear. That's what everybody in this continuum wants to hear. We want to hear those three words, return to work. Now, one of the things I think that's important to at least get us started is let's look at a workers' compensation patient, okay? Let's look at a lady who was actually injured on the job. Her name's Anne. That's the name we're going to give her. We're going to give her a different picture as well. But this is a real case. This is a real claim. And it's going to resonate with a lot of us who have taken care of patients like this or who we have reviewed claims that follow Anne's pattern for what happened with her as a result of her injury. 
Now, so Anne is a uh, delivery driver, and she's working one day, and she feels this really painful snap pop in the lower back of her right side of her back. And then she feels this pain radiating down to her foot. She feels these paresthesias, these dysesthesias, this numbness, this tingling, and she has a, a, a lumbar radiculopathy. Okay, so she has a pinched nerve. You know, you can see the, the nucleus propulsus. You can see pressing on the, the spinal nerve as it comes out of the canal right there. So she basically has a, an L5 radiculopathy in this case. Now, and, now, think about this. We could all be at home lifting a heavy box in the garage and experience the exact same symptoms, right? We could experience the exact same pain. We could experience the exact same numbness. We could experience the exact same symptoms. From a tissue injury standpoint, this is consistent with the type of injury we could have from a group health standpoint. But she's on the job, so now we have to think about that. We have to think about the anger. We have to think about the blame. We have to think about, was she working too many hours that shift? Had she worked too many days that week? Was there something else building there that could set this claim up for an adverse direction based on all of those work-related factors? Okay. So Ann's medical treatments start out just like we would expect with any other person who had this type of injury. We expect the medication management. We expect the physical therapy, plus or minus the epidural steroid injections, depending on how well her pain's recovering. But Ann's case takes a little bit of a turn for the, for the worse, she starts requiring more and more procedures, more and more interventions. Um, she requires some surgeries. She requires um, a, a medial branch block trials. She requires a, a spinal cord stimulator trial, which she, she did not pass that. And then ultimately, she ends up in addiction management. And so it's really heartbreaking when you read this, this patient's um, progress notes from her provider. And so the, the, the provider who's been prescribing her medications each visit is her pain is 6 out of 10. Um, she appears like she's doing well. Family states she's functional. Well, she gets to an addictionologist, and the addictionologist says that she's unkempt. She cannot stay awake. She's falling at home. He's barely able to even have her respond to questions. So a big, big difference here in terms of what's being documented from the from the provider as well as from the addictionologist. So thinking about that and thinking about setting this up, the unfortunate situation about this is that while these cases do not represent all of workers' comp cases, these are the cases that people remember. Okay? These are the cases that administrators remember. These are cases that medical directors remember. These are the cases that claims professionals remember. And so everybody has this fear that these cases are going to head in this direction. These are her medications that she was placed on, everything from opioids to muscle relaxants to benzos. Um, she was also on some topical medications, antidepressants, anticonvulsants. And so, again, it's that, it's that developing that direction of where is this claim headed. That's what we're thinking about. What likelihood does this patient have returning back to work on these medications? She's a delivery driver. Really, does she have that potential to get back to work on these medications when we read things that she's saying that she cannot stay awake and that she needs to be... Um, she needs to be physically stimulated just to have a, a response out of them. And so the question is, how do we make predictions about who's going to have a bad claim, who's going to have a good claim? Because here's another secret I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you in on this secret, okay? This is just between all of us here in this room. My observation, having provided health care and group health as well as workers' comp, and seeing this from the, the um, stage that I have right now, my observation is that workers' compensation claims have notes reviewed more thoroughly, more carefully, like progress notes, more carefully reviewed. 
Scripts are monitored more carefully. They're, they're monitored more closely. Um, predictions are made about what likelihood that patient is going to recover. Predictions are made about what likelihood that patient's going to have a long-term or a high-cost claim. Now, whenever I use the words long-term claim, long-duration claim, or a high-cost claim, I want you to tie those together in your head because high cost is usually indicative of a long-duration claim. As the longer the claim goes, the more cost there is because that's how much longer those medication therapies are being prescribed. So progress notes, scripts, predictions. The last thing is outcomes. Outcomes are being monitored much more closely in the workers' comp setting because think about it. Insurance companies, employers, payers, they are invested. They have a vested interest in making sure that that injured worker gets good care and that they get back to work, that they return back to work. They are vested in this. Okay? They are keeping an eye on how things are going with these claims. So speaking of making predictions, we can already make a couple predictions off of Ann just by her history. There was a study that was done in Ohio a few years ago that looked at what injuries had the highest cost associated with them by body part. So we know Ann's body part that was affected was a lumbar spine. So we know there that she's going to have a higher risk of having a high cost because of that body part that was involved. We also know that she was involved with the transportation occupation. So that puts her at a higher risk for having a higher cost as a part of her claim. Now remember, high cost equals higher duration, longer duration. Okay? This next slide I want to show it to you, and, and I'm afraid that some of these colors might not show up as well with the lighting, but th this is a really interesting slide. We use this a lot from a predictive analytics standpoint. This is how we make determinations. This is just one tool in our predictive analytics program that looks to determine what the likelihood is that somebody's going to have a long-term or a high-cost claim. And as you can see, I'll outline the colors I think you can see the most. So blue is the specific body part or that nature of injury. So blue would basically be that, hey, it was her lumbar spine that was injured. So we know up front, first month post-injury, that having that part of her body being injured, that body part being injured, had a very high percentage of significance in terms of importance in predicting her recovery. I know that kind of sounds, that sounds kind of um, complicated, but what I want you to remember from this, though, is that immediately post-injury, the body part that was injured, as well as the geographic and demographic history for that patient, those two variables have the most importance immediately after the injury and in helping us to predict whether or not that's going to be a long-term claim or a high-cost claim. The body part that was injured and demographics of that injured worker. Okay? As time goes on, though, what you'll see is that, let's say the blue, let's take the blue for instance, so that's the body part. As time goes on, so this over here is 24 months post-injury, two years, you can see over time the significance that the body part plays in the prediction goes down. It's not as important later on what body part that was injured. What's important later on is this big yellow bar over here, and that yellow bar is the pharmacy behavior. You can tell a lot about a person and their claim two years after that injury based on what medications are being prescribed, how many of them are being prescribed, what they are, what medication class they belong to, how many pills they're getting per month. A lot of different pieces of information goes into that. But you can see over time how this all, it, it all shifts. It changes over time so that we no longer view the body part as being as important as we do the pharmacy behavior. So this is what we're looking at two years later to determine 
where this claim is headed from a cost and duration standpoint. Is that, does that make sense? Everybody okay with that? Okay. <clears throat> now, since we're talking about pain, and it is pain week, we're going to talk briefly about opioids. So opioids represent the largest spend in workers' compensation when it comes to medications. Now, as you've probably heard in the um, earlier sessions today, we know that opioids, um, they're, they're complicated from a standpoint of what do we do and how do we do it and when do we do it. Workers' compensation, you're going to hear the question, well, what do the guidelines say? And your question might be, well, which guideline? I mean, doesn't it seem like every, for those of you who are in workers' compensation, it might seem like every couple of months there's a new state guideline, there's a new MED threshold, um, there's a new recommendation in terms of when that person should see an addictionologist or when they should see a pain specialist. So there are a lot of different guidelines out in workers' compensation. There's a lot of guidelines out there in general. And so the question is, which guideline and when? This is just an example of one of the most common guidelines in workers' compensation, the official disability guidelines. This is an excerpt from their recommendations when it comes to opioids. And so what you can see is that for chronic pain, let's take chronic pain at the bottom there. When there's demonstration of improved pain control, when function is improved, and there it is again, when there's return to work. <clears throat> what I would say from a guideline standpoint is if you're providing care, if you're um, reviewing claims, whatever it is that your role is, think about it in terms of this. I have to follow the guidelines that's required of me. So if I practice in a state that has its own state guidelines, that's the one I need to, to follow. If I have patients, of, if I take care of patients and I, if I practice within a certain specialty and my specialty whether it's uh, primary care or um, pain management, if they have their own practice guidelines, that's probably the ones that I'm going to focus on. The, the key here is know which guidelines you have to follow, know, or, and if you're re reviewing care, know which guidelines should be followed, know which guidelines should be followed, and, 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 and follow them closely. Know them very well. Document that you are following those guidelines with the care that's being provided to that patient or document that that patient is receiving guideline-based care. That's really important. Just one more slide about the criteria for the use of opioid analgesics um, from the ODG, from the Official Disability Guidelines. Again, it's, they're not considered to be first-line therapy for, for pain uh, unless other treatment options have been tried and failed. I'm thinking of non-steroidals, acetaminophen, some of those other types of uh, medications to treat pain. Um, again, not necessarily a first line, but usually is a second or a third line. And that ongoing evaluation of alternative treatment options, that ongoing documentation of risk, and that ongoing discussion of what other treatment options should be considered. <clears throat> One of the things that you may be aware of and that you may have observed is that opioids, they have side effects that encompass just about every possible uh, side effect you can think of when, when you look at them, okay, objectively. Now, they do have their role. They have their role for chronic pain management. They have their role for acute pain management. They have their role for um, uh, cancer pain management. But knowing that they have the potential for side effects, we have to be aware of those and act proactively. So if I have a patient in my office that I'm going to start on an opioid, I think about this different uh, set of body parts, these body systems that we have outlined here with those little icons, and I think about, okay, from a standpoint, I know they're at risk for respiration depression. If you're going to start somebody on opioids, have that discussion. We should see that discussion documented if that discussion was held. We know that they're at risk for depression. There are studies that have shown that patients who have um, opioids might be at a higher risk for depression. We know there's a risk for addiction. And so what I'm doing in my head is I'm actually walking through that list of potential side effects 
by body part. So over here, the bones, I think about opioid-induced osteoporosis. Over here, I think about the muscle fibers, and I think about the potential for um, I think about the potential for patients losing their cardiovascular fitness if they're not up moving around, if, if they might be sedated from the opioids, keeping them moving. And as we just continue to walk across here, I think about some of the um, other side effects, sexual dysfunction. So having that discussion about what the potential problems might be with erectile dysfunction or for low testosterone, and, and pretty much just walking across that list of potential side effects with those patients and documenting what those side effect potentials are and proactively being aware of those before they happen so there's a plan in place if and when they do happen. I think a perfect example is constipation, right? So we've got the GI system up here. So thinking about proactively managing that condition before it actually happens and having that discussion with that patient about what to expect if it does happen. I think that's a good example. So I put comorbid conditions up here, and you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, this is a pain conference. Why are we talking about comorbid conditions? In workers' compensation, comorbid conditions can mean everything. They really can. They really can. So let me give you a few examples of that. These are the most common comorbid conditions that we see in workers' comp. These are the ones that we see that there's areas for opportunity to intervene and to be mindful and to be careful of what medications patients are receiving or being prescribed with knowing what these comorbid conditions are in the background so that we can, again, maybe make a better decision about which medication to use based on that comorbid condition. Also to be, again, proactively educating that patient on what to expect and what could potentially be an adverse outcome based on the comorbids that they already have. And here's the catch, here's the catch. If somebody has a comorbid condition that might be a little troublesome, maybe they have a mild elevation of blood pressure, a mild case of hypertension, they get put on a medication that causes their blood pressure to skyrocket, guess what? That comorbid condition is now potentially compensable, right? Because if they didn't have the work injury in the first place, they wouldn't have had the medication to help treat that condition, that injury condition. If they wouldn't have had that injury condition and that medication that treats it, and now the complication from that or the exacerbation of the comorbid condition, they wouldn't have that problem now. So sometimes those medications will become compensable. Okay, so let's kind of walk through a few of these, just a few. I'm not going to do all of them. So from an aging standpoint, we know that the American Geriatric Society has the Beers criteria. We know they, they, they define their older adult population as being 65 or greater. So from that standpoint, we know that when we have patients who are 65 years, 65 years or older, that there needs to be special attention to those medications on the Beers list as to which medications should be avoided if possible and monitor closely if they are going to be prescribed. And so you can see some of these up here. And I think that would be, I think these are fairly intuitive as to why we would want to be careful. You know, we really don't want to make older adults sleepy and increase their risk for falls. Um, we really don't want to have them on long-term anti-inflammatory medications that in could increase the chance of a, a gastrointestinal ulcer or bleeding. And it's just kind of using, using what we know about medications to limit the risks that older adults have. The next um, couple of comorbid conditions and then a few medication profiles after that, I'm going to show a few of these graphs here. The most important thing here is the trend line. That's the most important thing for those of you who can't see it in the back. But what we have here plotted is this is a review of over 100,000 claims. This is over 100,000 patients. This is not 100,000 pills, not 100,000 prescriptions. This is 100,000 patients. I think, the, I think the total number is about 125,000 injured workers. And so the percentage 
of these claimants, these, these, these patients, these injured workers aged 65 or older using a benzodiazepine over the last two years. And you can see we're making progress here. We're understanding that benzodiazepines long-term is probably not a good idea for older adults. I think that's, I think that's a fair, uh, fair approach. And so what you can see is that that gradually has decreased from about 6.5% down roughly. Let's, let's get it to about 5.5%. So making some progress. The slope of the trend line, I think, is what's important. We're making progress with benzos in older adults, okay? <clears throat> it's a little more bumpy and rocky with the TCAs. And so when I look at this slide, the, the thing that I try to do is I try to understand it. And so part of me says, you know what, could this potentially be that there's been so much shift in our thoughts toward opioids over the last several years that we're kind of up and down with TCAs. Maybe one month they make sense, and maybe the next month they don't make sense in terms of our older population. That's the best I can do with, with why there's such variability and there's not such a smooth decline. But again, there's a decline here. You know, we know that those patients may be at a higher risk for urinary retention, sedation, or some other type of complication, even cardiovascular complication with the use of a TCA. <clears throat> so what about obesity? So obesity has become a very important comorbid condition to discuss. And the very first thing I think about when I think about the obese population from a workers' comp standpoint, I think about those patients who may have an arthritic knee, an arthritic hip, and then they have an injury. Let's say they've exacerbated that arthritic knee or that arthritic hip. <clears throat> and now to help get them through the recovery phase, through the physical therapy, through the exercises, through the weight bearing, all of those different treatment options that we would like to have happen, sometimes that can be limiting to their recovery because of that underlying obesity. So there are certain medications that have been shown to potentially, this is not all 100%, but potentially cause an increase in weight or limit the ability to lose weight. <clears throat> Depression is a big one. When we talk about comorbid conditions and workers' compensation, it is a big one. So think about the vicious cycle, pain, depression. There's actually another one at the bottom I'm going to get to in a minute. But think about that vicious cycle between pain and depression, how one feeds the next. And so thinking about medications that could potentially exacerbate depression, thinking about those anticonvulsant therapies, thinking about the sedatives, the, the benzodiazepines. Um, I, I would advise everybody who writes a prescription that if you're going to start a patient on an anticonvulsant medication who has underlying depression, possibly a history of suicidal ideation, that that discussion is clearly documented in your medical record because there is a significant, um, I shouldn't say significant, there is a risk that that could make that depression worse and you wanna make sure that you've covered yourself from a discussion standpoint and keep that patient as safe as you can. But there is that potential, at least that warning is out there between anticonvulsants and depression uh, history. And then also, you know, if we have the option of treating pain and depression at the same time, why not take advantage of that with an SNRI or um, a TCA, again, if they're not uh, at a point where they can't take a, a TCA due to another comorbid condition. So this is a slide that shows the combination of tramadol and antidepressants. You may be asking yourself, why do we care about tramadol and antidepressants? There's that potential for serotonin syndrome. And that's something we have to warn patients about whenever we're going to prescribe um, antidepressants along with another medication that can potentially result in serotonin syndrome. I admit this is probably the most frequent phone call I get from a pharmacist. They say, hey, do you realize you just started tramadol on a patient who's on uh, citalopram? And my response is usually uh, to the pharmacist, thank you very much for letting me know that. I, I appreciate the call. I appreciate the, the heads up. I, I've discussed that with the patient. 
We're going to start a low dose. It's going to be a very short-lasting dose of tramadol. We're hopeful that the physical therapy will help and the tramadol will be very short-lived. And I've advised this patient to be careful and monitor for these side effects. But thank you very much for the information. So, um, but as you can see, though, that information, that education is taking effect in terms of number of patients who are receiving both tramadol and antidepressants. It may not be as commonly known as it is with tramadol and antidepressants, but also cyclobenzaprine, so a muscle relaxant, has that potential to also cause serotonin syndrome. So we like to know when patients are on both and, and help provide that education as well during those cases. And again, thankfully, we have that decline here as well. Yeah, you increase your risk together, yeah. So both have serotonin um, reuptake uh, properties, yeah. So I didn't put corticosteroids up here. I thought that was, that was fairly um, intuitive. But I did put a couple of other medications up here that, that really, from a practice standpoint, you don't just think about every day in terms of the potential to increase the risk for um, hyperglycemia in diabetic patients. And so you think about those patients who might have, uh, let's say they've had surgery and they have a non-healing wound. The last thing you want to do is put them on a medication that, which could potentially increase their glycemic levels or their blood sugar levels. Again, these aren't extremely common side effects, but it really does look like we know what, what we're doing. We're on our game when we try to avoid medications that could potentially increase blood glucose levels when we're treating pain and depression at the same time as an example for duloxetine there. So insomnia, remember a few minutes ago I said that there was this vicious cycle between pain, depression. The bottom part of that cycle is the insomnia. Now we have patients who are having trouble with pain, they're having trouble with depression. Both of those feed the insomnia. And again, the insomnia makes the pain seem worse. So they are trapped in this vicious cycle of pain, depression, and insomnia. And so we want to be careful about the medications that we provide that might actually worsen insomnia. You know, so let's think about that. We, what do we want to do with these patients? We want to get them back to work. The last thing we want to do is keep, be keeping them up all night with medications. So again, that list of medicines that can potentially disrupt sleep patterns. And then also some other considerations to have with um, non-pharmacologic treatment options for um, insomnia. One thing I've got there at the bottom is the concomitant use of hypnotics and stimulants. What we were really having a hard time with for a while was seeing patients who were on a stimulant during the day. Let's say they're on a, an opioid. Let's say something is, is making them a little bit drowsy during the daytime. Maybe it's an antidepressant. So for some reason they're drowsy during the day, so they get placed on a stimulant during the day. Well, part of that stimulant hangs out till the evening hours. And so now they're not sleeping at night, so a sedative gets added at night. And then that sedative hangs out a little bit later in the morning, and now they're having trouble getting out of bed and getting going. So now the dose of the, of the stimulant is increased. So you've got this stimulant during the day, and you've got this hypnotic at night. And again, we have another vicious cycle where we're actually causing excessive daytime sleepiness with a, with a hypnotic, but we're causing insomnia with a stimulant. And if you don't believe me, we can actually look here and see what that trend line has been with patients who have been receiving both. So this is a chart that shows what's happened over the last two years, again, over 125,000 claims, where there's actually a combination of a hypnotic, and I apologize, this is actually the right slide here. There's actually a combination of the hypnotic as well as a stimulant um, for that same patient. But again, we do have that decline in the frequency. This previous slide, I apologize for going backwards on you. So this previous slide, again, shows that potential for causing increased sleepiness by combining two very potentially sedative-type medications together, such as hypnotics and benzodiazepines. Again, thankfully, a negative trend line.
So another very important comorbid condition is hypertension. And we take this really seriously because you think about all the potential issues and conditions that can result from high blood pressure and out-of-control blood pressure. So when we think about medications that need to be cautioned with or we need to be careful with, some of those medications that are known to increase, um, increase uh, patients' blood pressures, even if they don't already have underlying hypertension, stimulants, steroids, some of the antidepressants. When we get to the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, not recommended for long-term use, um, one thing I want to call your attention to here is uh, the dosing of celecoxib. So usually what we would expect to see for celecoxib for, let's say, <clears throat> arthritic conditions or inflammatory conditions would be about 200 to 400 milligrams a day, roughly. Um, 400 is getting up there pretty high. We're still seeing doses in the 600 and 800 milligrams per day of celecoxib. Which, which is very troublesome. Now, these are not the conditions that, that, that you might have heard of where the higher doses might be indicated, such as polyp conditions and some of those other type of inflammatory conditions. These are for workers' comp claims. So still some very, very high dosing of celecoxib that's going on. So I mentioned what potential complications hypertension could lead to, cardiovascular disease, stroke, especially if somebody's already had one of those conditions, we want to be especially careful with what types of medications are out there that could potentially be even more problematic, such as the NSAIDs or even the TCAs. Um, one thing I wanted to point out here, too, is especially with methadone. So being aware of what that QT interval is, I would say that if, if you don't have a, uh, a documented EKG on the chart, excuse me, every so often that demonstrates that the QT interval is stable and that they've had um, whatever evaluation you feel appropriate uh, from a cardiologist, consider that because it's a very well-known fact that methadone can prolong the QT interval. There have been a couple recent studies that have come out that have suggested uh, increased risk of cardiovascular complications with opioids. I think it's important to talk about because if you have somebody who is at high risk for a heart attack or if they're at high risk for heart disease and your options include opioids, it might behoove you just to kind of look at those studies and just kind of just get a sense for where you stand on that and make sure you're you're providing that best um, recommendation that you can, whether it's for a long-acting opioid. That was one of the more recent studies. And then there are also other studies out there that show that multiple opioids together taken for a prolonged period of time can increase the risk of having a heart attack too. Proton pump inhibitors, I'm going to carry over to the next slide. So we know that there are uh, those patients out there who have reflux, and it's very common. Uh, they have GERD. Maybe that's before their injury. <clears throat> so maybe it's not something we have to worry about from the workers' comp side. But when these patients are prescribed anti-inflammatories for prolonged periods of time, it's almost, uh, it's almost uh, predictable that they're going to end up on a proton pump inhibitor at some point, either to protect them from the NSAID that they're taking or to treat the symptoms that they developed as a result of the NSAIDs. So we need to be aware of what those potential risk factors for are, the, are for those medications as well and look to see if there's another treatment option there, one of the antihistamines or some other approach to helping them not develop any further complications related to um, their uh, proton pump inhibitors. <clears throat> I threw in the over-the-counter generic availability here because I think, and I'll do this from time to time, there'll be a couple little cost elements in there. I think that it's important for us to, to at least have those mentioned where appropriate because as a part of healthcare, I think we all want to do the right thing in terms of taking care of people. When there's an option to do something at a little bit of a lesser cost and there's no change in outcomes, there's no change in the patient compliance, and if it's a relatively even, even playing field, I think it's important to look at is there a, is there a lesser cost alternative. I think that's fair. <clears throat> 
So we're going to walk through a few specific medication class considerations. Th these next few slides are, are my, my intent for the next few slides is just to give you a few nuggets, a few pearls to take away. And you can use these, again, either from a practice standpoint or you can use these from a, a claim review standpoint with whatever it is that you're doing with, re with respect to workers' compensation or medication in general. So let's hit a couple of these here. Anticonvulsants, remember those are going to be your Lyrica, your gabapentin medications. Remember that those are required to have adjustments if there's underlying renal dysfunction. So if somebody has kidney disease or if they have problems with their blood counts, if they have anemia, I would say that it's very important to make sure that those studies are being documented, that they're being completed, um, making sure that if there's any options for what we would call dose optimization are taken care of. So think about this. So dose optimization is basically taking one medication that's, let's say, taken three times a day when you can technically transition that to twice a day. You've decreased the pill burden for that patient. Now instead of taking medicines three times a day, they're taking it twice a day. An example of that would be Lyrica. Instead of three-time-a-day dosing, convert it to twice-daily twice dosing. Dermatologicals, this is a big class in workers' compensation because there are a lot of new creams out there. There's a lot of ways to apply medications to the skin. The two that I wanted to focus on here were topical lidocaine and topical NSAIDs. With the lidocaine, just remember that from a guideline standpoint, topical lidocaine is technically for neuropathic pain, and so it's not really a first-line medication for neuropathic pain. Usually the expectation is that patients tried some other type of oral medication first, let's say a gabapentin or a Lyrica or some other type of neuropathic agent before they would go to topical lidocaine. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, what we're seeing a lot of too is that there's duplication of therapy where somebody might be taking oral diclofenac as well as using diclofenac gel on their hands or their knees. And so stepping back from that, thinking, well, why isn't one good enough? You know, is there really an additional benefit by using a cream of one anti-inflammatory as well as a pill that's an anti-inflammatory? The takeaway there is that even though the absorption is small, there still is some systemic absorption of topical medicines. So keep that in the back of your mind. And so looking at that and knowing that there really is not a, a proven need for having patients on both oral and topical, we can also see a decline there over the last couple of years for the percentage of patients taking both. <clears throat> we already hit a lot on opioids, but this is the part where I wanted to give you a few takeaways, a few pearls to think about in particular with, uh, with opioids. So if you're, not, if, you're pres if you're prescribing opioids and you're not currently calculating an MED on every patient that you have on opioids, that is really something you should strongly consider. You know, the last thing you want to have is, is have somebody question you on what MED your patient's on, and you really don't know it to be able to communicate that. Now, I know that seems like a, a very monotonous type job, whether that's done through an online calculator, whether somebody in the office can do that for you or have that done. I think it should be an expectation that if we have patients on opioids, we should know what MED they're at because there's so many guidelines out there that tell us what to do based on that MED level. Okay? <clears throat> also, those thresholds that we talked about of when they should potentially be evaluated by a pain specialist or potentially a, an addictionologist. Another one of the guiding principles that's out there in guidelines is that the MED of the short-acting opioid, if they're on both, if they're on a long-acting as well as a short-acting, that the MED of the short-acting should not be greater than the MED of the long-acting. So think about that from a practical standpoint. If you have a higher MED associated with a longer-acting opioid, hopefully you have a little bit more control over those basal pain levels and you're not having as many peaks and valleys of the pain control and you might be avoiding some of those euphoria feelings too if they're taking a significantly high uh, dose of the short-acting opioids. 
If there's greater than six short-acting opioids per day, we, we typically recommend considering a long-acting opioid, but at the same time, not, de not increasing that total MED. So it would basically be that conversation with the patient say, you know what, we're not going to change the total amount of opioids that you're receiving. What we're going to do is we're going to adjust it so we have a better control over your basal pain level, so the pain that lasts through all the day, but you'll still have those PRN or as-needed doses to help for those acute uh, episodes of pain. One more slide here on the opioid section, at least. We try to avoid having more than one opioid that is a long-acting or more than one short-acting opioid at a time. I think it clouds the water a lot when we have that, when there's, let's say, two long-acting opioids. So if you have somebody who's on um, extended-release oxycodone as well as sustained-release morphine, or, or take that the other way, it could be um, hydrocodone and, um, let's say, oxycodone, both immediate release. It kind of clouds the water a little bit, and it makes it a little bit more um, unsettling, I think, for, for that situation where they're on more than one of each or each other of those. Um, I put morphine sulfate ER up here. So from a sustained release standpoint, from an extended release standpoint, morphine sulfate has historically been the first-line approach for long-acting long opioids. Being aware of opioid-induced hyperalgesia and knowing what those signs are when that patient says, you know what, I know that you're increasing my pain medications, I know you're increasing my opioids, but my pain's getting worse or it's just not getting better at all. And that pain, those pain levels could potentially be increasing. Think about that as being a, a, not a non-compliant situation. Don't think of that as necessarily being um, an aberrant behavior, but, but consider that there might be a, a case of uh, hyperalgesia where they become hypersensitized to pain as a result of pot potentially opioids. The four A's, having those documented in each chart and each patient, each visit. Um, avoiding combination with opioids with other sedating medications. I think this is a very telling chart. So up until now, I think our percentages have been in the 1% to maybe 7 8%-ish. This is actually, if you can see that up at the top two years ago, about 22% of the patients out of these 125,000 were taking an opioid along with another sedating medication, which could have included a benzo, a, a hypnotic, a muscle relaxant, or a sedative. So we, you know, we're really making some strides. I mean, that, that could be down um, maybe almost 10% there in terms, I'm sorry, not 10%, uh, maybe about 7% there of the decline over the last several years. Skeletal muscle relaxants, not going to spend a lot of time on this, just to know that skeletal muscle relaxants are not typically recommended long-term. They're... Yes, yes. Yeah. Great question. Great question. So the, the data that, that I'm showing here is our company's data. So this is workers' compensation. These were all of our entire book of business. This is what we observed from a workers' compensation standpoint over the last two years. Yeah, great question. Yes, sir. I'm sorry? Uh, 50 states, all 50 states. Uh, about 125,000, yep. Yes, sir. Yeah, oh, I apologize. So um, effective analgesia, so effective pain relief, any aberrant behaviors, um, improvement in activities of daily living, improvement in function, and documenting any adverse effects or adverse events. Yes, sir, sorry. Pain score reduction, how strict are, uh, do I take that? I, I think, uh, and I think this, ca this came up actually in an earlier session today, I think function's much more telling. I think pain scores can be telling depending on how you look at it and through the lens. 
So the question is how, you know, how strict are we with pain scores? I th the challenge is, is that, I'm gonna, tell, I'm gonna digress for a second. The challenge with pain scores is that the patient oftentimes is trying to guess what you're thinking. And so if the patient thinks, you know what, if I say my pain's a two, I'm probably gonna get cut off, right? They're gonna take away my opioids because now I'm better. If I say my pain's a 10 out of 10, they're gonna think I'm faking it, you know, because obviously I'm not a 10 out of 10 or I'd be in the ER. So let me give it a six or a seven. That's kind of middle of the road type feeling. I think, I think it's more important to look at the function and to ask the questions of, okay, so tell me about your day-to-day. -day. You know, what time did you get out of bed? You know, what was the one thing today that you wish you could have done but you couldn't because of your pain? And is that getting better? Function will always be more meaningful, in my opinion, in, as opposed to a, a numerical pain score. Yes, sir? Okay, good question. Um, what, I'll, what I'll do is I'll say from a pharmacy benefit manager, we do not make denials. We, we do not deny medications. Workers' compensation, that ultimate decision is left up to the payer. That's left up to the payer. So if we see a claim where, let's pull one up here. <clears throat> that could be the insurance company. That, that could be the insurance company. That could be the carrier, whoever's paying for that condition, whoever, whether it's the employer, if it's a self-insured. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're. Because a lot of them drugs you talked about, mm -hmm. drugs that are going to cost you a penny. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Toxical life, pain, uh, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it really Mm-hmm. So to get back to your question in terms of the meaningfulness of, of these trend lines, so what I would say is that I'm, I'm not going to take credit. I'm not going to take credit for all of these reductions for any of these slides. This is what we've observed as a whole. We've not intervened on a whole, all 125,000 of these claims. No, 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 no. I apologize. No, I've been misleading if, I, if that's what I've conveyed. Um, we help manage the benefit. So right. we provide. Every, mm -hmm. every trend line mm -hmm. says you are paying less year by year. Right. That, that's, a, that's a potential. Now, a lot of times it makes more sense to put somebody in another medication that might be safer but a higher cost. Okay, but I'm telling yeah. I, I think this is a great conversation. I'm happy to hang around. I want to be sensitive to the next presenter. How about this? I'm not going to go through each of the rest of the slides. I'm going to at least show you what's there. So if you want to look at it later, you can. Um, there's some questions to consider about compounded medications. That's a big thing. I have a few specific examples in there of patients who had some potential changes to medications that would be effective. Some collaboration pieces. There's some things in there about CBT, interdisciplinary rehab chiropractic PT, electromedical devices. I wanted to make sure I at least showed you what was in there content-wise, okay? And I'm happy to hang around if anybody has any other further questions. Thank you for your time.